I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to give you my thoughts, look at this handout with you, and then uh, then go to discussion groups. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank You again for a chance to be uh, in Your Word, and thank You. Lord, thank You that You've given us the Scriptures mm-hmm. that uh, they are so available to us, and You've given us Your Spirit, and you've, uh, you've given us the ability to know You and to come to faith through the Word, and we just appreciate that. And pray, Father, for Your help tonight as we study and as we discuss, that You would uh, show us the things that You have for us, and we ask You to do that in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. So, as I've worked through this, and, you know, the, the questions, they weren't really questions, were they? No. They were sort of... Yeah. The, the nature of this chapter is uh, it's it's one that you we could get all tangled up in a lot of the, the various ways of seeing it, the viewpoints. Um, you know, in this study over the last few years, of course, we were in Revelation all last year, which touches on some of these things, or some of you might think that, and some of you might not think that. Um, we we studied Matthew a few years ago, which you know, Matthew's version of this. Sermon, this discourse by Jesus, Matthew 24 and 25. So, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the Matthew and Mark's Gospel also. Mark and Matthew are very close. Jesus gave it while they're on the Mount of Olives, although Luke does not draw that out. It's not a big, you don't see that so much in Luke's version. But it's the same instance where Jesus is asked the question, somebody, you know, they make the observation, somebody makes the observation about the, the grandeur of the temple, the magnificence of it. And, and Jesus takes that as an opportunity to um, give them... You know, actually, as I continue to think about why, I mean, i got some answers to that question, but it they weren't really asking for this until he said what he said. Right? They were just, wow, what a magnificent building. And then Jesus says, you know, the, the time is coming when not a single stone will be on. This whole thing is going to be knocked down. And we, Bernie's seen it. How many of you have been to the Holy Land and seen? I have not. I've seen pictures, you know. And everything I've read, um, commentaries and, and, and Bible dictionaries and so forth. Apparently, it was it was an impressive structure, huge, ornate, gilded. It was impressive in a lot of ways, and it was. I mean, I, I guess I tend, you know, just to try to get a mental image of how dramatic, how shocking it would have, or how even incredulous. What do you mean? To, it'd be like maybe some if you'd have gone to New York City prior to 9-11 and made some bold statement in some context. You know those two tall buildings? They're going to they're gonna be in rubble. I mean, it, you, you'd have just, what? Now, they took that, because you know, we've seen instances even in Luke's Gospel where they, you know, they had an anticipation that this thing is about this, the kingdom the, the, and, and all that they thought about what that meant and what Jesus was going to do. They thought... You know, this, this thing's about to happen. So when he made that statement, they they thought 
this must be it. So they ask him. And so in Luke's version, um, and I say Luke's version, I was listening to one guy teaching on the Matthew version. If you read Matthew and a lot of the English translations, it looks like they ask three questions in Matthew's. This guy said, if you knew the Greek, you would recognize it. It's only two questions. Although it looked like three. But here it's... Um, and so we're, start, we're picking it up in Matthew 20, I mean Luke 21, right at uh, verse 5. Actually, is it, is it 5b? No, it's verse 5. I just, okay. And so while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And so then he proceeds, starting in verse 8, all the way down through verse 36, to um, answer the questions and as well as give them more than what they were asking. Um, so what I, as I work through the, the Luke version of it... Um, well, I ended up organizing it, and the question, the study guide that I sent out reflected kind of my, in a, big, in a broad way, way I understand the text. And I took a little a different approach or to try to just refine it a little bit, and that's the handout I gave you. So what I want to do is just explain the handout a little bit. We're not going to go into all the details, but just to give you the structure, that I, the way I see it. And then to, to kind of move down to uh, you know, verse 34, 34, 35, 36, that's, that's Jesus' application of, of all that He's telling them. So, see, and so my point is I'm going to lay this out, and then when we go to discussion group, then you can, you can say, well, I thought that was... I thought he's totally wrong, or I liked what he said, or I agreed with this part, or didn't agree with that part, to some extent. But, but I don't want us to to just get totally bogged down and just debating one another about, well, I think this is happening first and that, but then this. Well, what about? I mean, obviously, we want to we want to wrestle with it to some extent, but we don't want to just get bogged down in um, in, in. Does that make sense? Am I? Because as, as soon as I say I don't, I, I don't want to give the impression that we don't that we don't care what the text actually says. Because Jesus said what He said, <laughs> and when we taught, when I did Revelation last time, I don't know if you remember if you were with us in Revelation. I took two weeks, I think, and we went to First and Second Thessalonians. And my take from First and Thess- First and Second Thessalonians was that eschatology is good for the church. Because they asked Paul, they were troubled by some, some misunderstanding. And Paul did not just say, well, don't worry about it. It really doesn't matter. You know, don't worry about how it's all going to... Don't get too hung up on these in the, 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 the eschatology, the study of, of last things. He didn't do that. He went into... He started telling about the, the, uh, the man of lawlessness and how he was going to take his seat... On the, in the temple where he shouldn't be, and things like that. So anyway, so that's that is my conviction. It does matter. The details matter, but I don't want to get so 
uh, spend so much time in the details that we miss Jesus' application. So, as I read through it, I'm, I'm reading through, they ask him the two questions, and the first thing he said, and this is, you see, I think you see this both in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first thing Jesus says in response to their questions is, look at verse 8. See that you were not led astray. And I think in Matthew, you, you see his warning and his concern about them being misled, led astray, deceived in several places as he moves through the text. So he says, see that you not be led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And this time, the time is at hand. Jesus says, don't go after them. You'll, when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified. For these things must first take place. And there's a time. There's, but, but the end will not be at once. So, so if you look on my diagram, I ended up saying, well, the end is the second coming of Christ. So that's in the far, left hand, far right hand column. And Jesus is saying, these, these wars, tumults, these things, they, they will happen. They must happen first. And he comes back to that. Um, and I give you the references 20, 25 through 28 and 29 to 33. Um, and I, just in a nutshell, Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a bunch of bad stuff happen. Those do not... Those are not indications that, that it's about to happen. I think in, in Matthew's version, it's even more explicit about that. So then he says, he continues, verse 10, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So all that's going to happen before the end... But look at verse 12. Then he says, but before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. And so that gets me all the way back to my far left column. But before all this, what is all this? All those things he's just been describing. All these. And that's why you see in my handout, I've got sort of at the very top row I've got things that must first take place that he's talking about in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, sort of spanning. You know, if I'm reading verse 12 correctly, before those things happen, this other thing, this other set of events is going to happen, and it's specifically, he's looking at these disciples. They will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering up you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Sell it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll, eat, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be, some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I'm convinced that he's really taught, he's talking specifically to the disciples about what's really going to be happening to them in the next 20, 30 years from when he said this. And and I think we see it all in the book of Acts. We don't see it all. We see a lot of it in the book of Acts. 
exactly what you know Peter and James being brought before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus giving them testimony to answer their accusers, so much so that the, the Jewish, the Sanhedrin, are, they, they remarked, these men are just fishermen. But they, you know, it was obvious they'd been with Jesus. Uh, they are persecuted. They are martyred. Um, some of them. You know, they were brought to the synagogues, the prisons. You know, Paul, the, the last... Six chapters or so of the book of Acts is Paul being brought before Festus and Agrippa and Herod and finally to Rome, right? So, so Jesus is telling the, this group of disciples, um, it's, there's very specifically, you guys are about to, about to see some tough times, but not ahead of your hair will perish. And he doesn't mean physically perish because he just told them some of you will be killed. So he's talking about eternal life. You'll be preserved. And then verse 20, but in the ESV and in the... Where's where's chapter 21? Here we go, Luke 21. But NAS and ESV, I think the NIV does not have the... doesn't have a contrasting a particle or whatever you call that. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And and the contrast, I think the contrast there, he says, look, with regard to the end, when Jesus is coming, when when I'm coming back, that he gets to in a a little bit, in a few more verses, there's a lot of stuff going to happen between now and that event that doesn't signal that event. Wars, pestilences, earthquakes, a lot of stuff. None of those particularly indicate that the end is near. But in contrast to these folks, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and he goes on to describe it, then know that its desolation has come near. You see the difference? You see the contrast between those two? And he describes it, verse 20 through 24 to me is so explicit and so um, local, so concrete. I'm convinced that he, he really is talking about what was going to be, what was about to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. Remember part of the question, his statement was, this temple is going to be knocked down. And they ask him, when's that going to happen? And he's essentially, he didn't give him a date, but he's describing what happened in 70 A.D. When the Romans finally took, uh, sieged Jerusalem, burned the temple, knocked it down. Now I think, um, I think that because that this this what happened to Jerusalem is a is a um, I'm losing the word. It's it's a foreshadowing, if you will. It's it's uh, typical of what will ultimately happen. Because if you read Matthew and Mark's Gospels, it reads a little more like, it's a little less clear to me as to, is he talking about 70 AD or is he talking about something, you know, if you're a dispensationist, what's going to happen during the tribulation? I think Luke is the the strongest uh, Gospel writer to indicate that his focus was more specifically on Jerusalem than the other two Gospel writers. 
And then verse 25, so on, my, on the chart, you see that, so that got us to the second column from the left. And, and then you, the third column, by the way, is just that, that half of a verse, 24b. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And go ahead, and did I give you the, uh, yeah, the cross-reference that I, I put in the chart there, Romans 11, 25, uh, seems to be talking about, indicates a, a, a time where God's focus is on the Gentiles. Romans 11 is that chapter where he's, taught, he's basically still answering the question, Paul is, why has most of Israel rejected the gospel? And he ends up saying, well, the elect did not reject, but the rest were hardened. And then he starts talking about how the natural branches have been broken off from the vine, from the root. And the unnatural branches, being the Gentiles, have been grafted in. And he, he goes on and ends up saying, in verse 25, said, and that's going to come to an end. In fact, let's turn there real quick. Romans 11, just to see that. Who hid Romans in my Bible? There it is. Made it right after chapter 10. Yeah. He says, um, For I do not want, this is verse 25, chapter 11, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until until the, full, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Which is, <laughs> in, in one sense, it's like, wow. You're talking about the ways of God, His ways are not our ways? To me, that 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 would be like the aim of chapter Romans 11. Because earlier in the chapter, he talks about God setting aside, breaking off the natural branches, grafting in the unnatural branches in order to make the Jews jealous to, to, in order to save them. It's, it's a, <laughs> so there, that's kind of big picture. But it corresponds to what, what Luke, what Jesus was talking about here. That at the end of 70 AD, and, and I, you know, I'm not a historian, in that time frame, the Jews were dispelled. From Israel, now uh, you know to the nations. So, and, and Jerusalem is, has been trampled underfoot by Gentiles at least until 1948. And uh, um, so, then verse 25, we finally get to the, final, the far right column. And and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. To me, that was pretty. That was pretty specific. Sun, moon, and stars. Signs in there, as, as opposed to the generic. You know, further up we read, uh, sign, great signs from heaven, verse eleven up there. But this is signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Notice the word nations. People fainting, meaning it's it, again. It, it doesn't seem to be local to Jerusalem. He's moved to a different event at this point. People fainting with fear and, and with foreboding of what is coming on the world 
For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, and of course, verse 27, clearly what he's talking about. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. There's an old song about that that I can't remember what it is, but it seemed like it was the Gaither, the Gaither or something. I don't know who it was. Um, so, so now he's talking about the end which he alluded to back up in verse 9. And, and let me say this. One of the things he's telling them in all of this, and I think he's, is that this, this end that you, that you guys are anticipating or... It's going to happen, not like you think it's going to happen, and there's going to be a delay before it happens. And while we're on that, let's, let me, uh, because in case I forget, because I'll probably jump over to Acts. Um, if you're in Romans still, go back to the left a little bit. Very first, very first chapter of Acts. If you've studied Acts with us or if you memorized it to impress your wife, um, you know, either one of those reasons. You know, Acts starts off at the the ascension, just prior to the ascension. Jesus is there with his disciples, and uh, verse six, chapter one, verse six. And so, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, "Lord, is it at this time? Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?" So they still have this this expectation. And his answer to them was, he said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. And that's a great uh, reminder every time we study these kinds of things. God Jesus wanted His disciples to know some things, but but not everything. And He says, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed. So they are fixed, but we don't know when they are. Um, in fact, in Matthew's version, it, it's where Jesus said, look, not even, uh, not even the, how does he put it? Not the angels, nor even the Son of Man knows when that day is. When Jesus, when the second coming is going to happen. Alright, so back to uh, Luke 21. Let me see if I can wrap this up here. So he tells them the parable in 29... Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Somebody pointed out that Luke is the only one who adds and all the trees. This parable shows up in the other two accounts, Matthew and Mark. They're really focused on the Jewish audience. Luke is focused on a more Gentile audience. And he didn't want... One commentator said, you know, there's, there's a, in, in Scripture, there's a definite connection between the fig tree and Israel. And Luke, this, and this is, I don't know if it's true or not. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. He, he kind of added, and all the trees, just so you don't think I'm just talking about Israel. Anyway, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves, and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And I, I'm taking, he's talking about what he's just delineated in verse 25 to 28. You see these things happening? Um you know it's, it's about to happen. The kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so verse 32 is, is um, it's one of those challenging verses. It really tests you. Because here's, um, it's hard not to understand, that, at least to me, it's hard not to understand that in a literal sense. That Jesus, like many times in, the, in Luke as well as in Mark and Matthew, when he says this generation, he's talking about the folks that, he's, that are right there with him. People that are alive. Uh, the, the commentators, if you did any word study on it, which I did, I've got about five pages, and after reading it, and this was when we did Matthew and Mark, trying to understand, trying to come to the answer. What does this generation mean, right, definitively? Because if, if it's literal, I mean, if you know, this generation will not pass away, and if all is taking place, then you have to understand everything he's just talked about happening in 70 A.D., they were in 33 A.D. about this time, or 30, 33 A.D. A generation, there's places in Scripture you can, that show that a generation is 33 and a third to, four, to 40 years. And so, 33 A.D. just literally gets you right up to about, if you add 33 or 30-ish you know, years, you get up to 70 A.D. when at least, at least verses 20, well, verses 10 up to 24 happened. But the difficulty is Jesus coming, the Son of Man, verse 27, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I can't fit that one. I, and, and I can't come to an understanding of that, that that would say it happened before all the people that were alive with Jesus before that whole generation had died. I've heard, I've heard some do that. I've heard one in particular who was a very, he's a, a renowned Bible teacher. I heard it 20 some years ago. Anyways, so it's one of those places where you just, it, what I end up doing is saying, okay, well, there's some stuff I don't understand. And if, and if, if you want to take that, what I, what I, what I do listen for is people who, who respect? Who see that in the text and don't just ignore it? Because it's in the text and it's in all three gospel accounts. <laughs> uh, but there's another one very similarly back in Matthew when he talks about the seven. He, what he, he's describing what what appears to be the tribulation. He calls it the great tribulation, and he says immediately after this. And he talks. Then he talks about these, the, the coming, the second coming, Jesus coming in power. And so, if I'm going to be literal here, I also want to be literal there. Immediately, it's like I can't put those two together. Um. Anyway, hopefully, you're kind of you feel you've experienced what I'm talking about. My bottom line of all that is, I a few years ago I quit having. Uh, cynical or arrogant or um, um, derogatory thoughts. Not that I'd necessarily ever say anything to your face, but if I learned that you held a position that I disagreed with, I would go away from church, you know, after praying with you, right? Thinking, I can't believe Dick Winter thinks what you that moron. You believe that, you know? I, I, now he does. Yeah. Now I just put my arm around. It, you know, brother. No. Um, 
That's right. <laughs> and I think y'all heard me when we were in Revelation. I, that is my exhortation is, is that we learn, we recognize there, there are real difficulties in these texts. And it's not simple. Uh, it's not clear cut. This way is right, and everybody over, everybody that sees it differently is just wrong and moronic or whatever other derogatory term I might. Yeah, no, it, it's this that difficult in the text. So it just is, and, and let's just uh, understand that and, and wrestle with it and love each other through it. Now, so Jesus says all that, and then he says, verse thirty four. And this is where we'll, I'll dismiss you here in just a couple of minutes. Because I want you to you know, spend some time reacting to what we, you know, the rest of the text. But I want you to be sure and get down to, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And I thought, <laughs> was that really a problem? He's talking to his disciples, <laughs> at least in the immediate context. Um, but then he went on and cares of this lie. Okay, well, now you got me. And that then, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And again, there you go. It's what he's talking about. This coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, is global. Um, it didn't just. Ha- it's not something that just happened locally in Jerusalem in seventy A.D. At least that's 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 the conclusion I'm, that I'm forced to that I'm compelled to take. Um, all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. That was my aim, by the way, that I didn't give you, that uh, to cause the audience to know that prayer is the key to staying alert, to staying awake. I don't think I'd seen that before. I don't know that. Actually, I didn't go back and look in the Matthew and the Mark account. But he's very explicit here. He says, stay awake at all times, praying. You know, how do I stay awake? By praying that I might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Think about that together, because I don't think he's I don't think he's simply saying, Lord, get me out of the way when all this bad stuff starts happening. Move me out. Um, Although it kind of reads that way. But uh, escape what? That's kind of the question I'm alluding to there. And one, one guy said that was appealing to me, escape falling into apostasy. Um, so that in, in the, the, the contrast or the opposite of, or, or the result of escaping is being able to stand before the Son of Man. Because that's what we want. And he's saying... Well, you need to pray about that. And I thought, gee, do we do that in our Sunday school classes? <laughs> when it's prayer time, do we pray for each other that, Lord, when you come, may we escape? Or, you know, if we try to delve into what does that mean? What is it we're praying for? Because we certainly want to be able to stand before the Son of Man. I'm going to stop there, dismiss you to your discussion groups, and let you debate each other and and encourage each other and figure out what it means to pray in order to stay awake. Father, would you help us as we discuss?
uh, as we wrestle with these things. And we thank you that you've given them to us. And again, we ask you for your Spirit's help. We ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.